Well, good morning. It's good to see you all. Uh, the choir sounded beautiful this morning. We're in for a treat in a little bit, uh, if you didn't hear them. Uh, there are handouts. Uh, Parks is handing them out back there if you didn't get one. You don't absolutely need this for this lesson. It's just uh, scripture proofs that go along with the hymn that we're looking at this morning. Um, there's a lot of them, and Robin told me if I gave these to you that you wouldn't listen to me. You would just read them. But I made the print so small that that's not going to be a problem. But hopefully, hopefully this will be helpful to you, and uh, you can take it with you and, and look over these. I'll, I'll be talking about a few of these uh, as we go on. Well, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you are our gracious God, and we thank you that you sent the Lord Jesus, uh, him who is rich beyond all splendor, uh, that he condescended to be with us, to be one of us and yet without sin. Uh, to die and to rise so that we might have salvation. And Him we celebrate, uh, Him we rejoice in this day. Uh, Lord, would you help us to uh, see and savor Him better this morning uh, as we look at this hymn and as we look to at your word. Uh, help us by the Holy Spirit's power, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, our, our hymn, our carol this morning is Thou Who Was Rich Beyond All Splendor. Just show of hands, who would say that you're very familiar with this hymn? Some of you, okay, that's more than I thought. This is not a hymn that I was particularly familiar with, but it's a really wonderful, rich hymn. And so I want to start by us reading it together. I'll read if you would follow along. Uh, it's printed there in, in front of you, or you can look at, it's in the hymnal and uh, on a two, it's hymn 230, uh, or it's on the screen behind me. Uh, this is uh, Frank Houghton's Thou Who Was Rich Beyond All Splendor. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. Thrones for a manger did surrender, sapphire paved courts for stable floor. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake becamest poor. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man, stooping so low but sinners raising, heavenward by thine eternal plan. Thou who art God beyond all praising, all for love's sake becamest man. Thou who art love beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship thee. Emmanuel within us dwelling, Make us what Thou wouldst have us be. Thou who art love beyond all telling, Savior and King, we worship Thee. Uh, this, this hymn, and uh, maybe the tune is uh, a bit familiar to you. It's a, it's a French tune, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce that. I did try out loud a couple times this week, and I think you would prefer me to read a genealogy than to, re than to try to do that for you. But it sounds very beautiful. And if you uh, look this up and listen to uh, a choral performance of, of, this, uh, of this French carol, it's, it's really beautiful. But that's the tune for uh, this hymn. It was written by Frank Houghton, uh, who was born in 1894 in uh, Stafford, England. He was the fourth of eight children. Uh, when Frank was 17, he and his brother nearly drowned. They were actually rescued and pulled unconscious from the sea and resuscitated. And from that time, Frank and his brother sensed a call to serve the Lord, to devote themselves to some kind of ministry. And so uh, Frank sought to be a missionary to China. 
And so he went to China uh, with China Inland Mission, uh, which was founded by Hudson Taylor. And he actually married uh, Dorothy Castles, uh, who was the daughter of William Castles, one of the Cambridge Seven. Uh, Cambridge Seven were uh, six students and then uh, one, uh, six students from Cambridge and then one from uh, another school who uh, became uh, missionaries through China Inland Mission in 1885. So uh, Frank and his wife Dorothy are missionaries in China. Um, the Frank, from a young age, about the age of 13, was a, a writer and a poet. He would write uh, poems about the Lord. He would also write funny poems. Um, but but he, was, he was always a writer. And uh, the hymn, this particular hymn that we're looking at this morning, came out of a tragedy. Uh, in, uh, in China, there were uh, missionaries, John and Elizabeth or Betty Stam, uh, missionaries with China Inland Mission, and they were uh, actually captured by communist soldiers, uh, marched 12 miles and beheaded. Um, and this was, and, and actually their, their daughter, whose name was Helen, survived this terrible moment. They hid her in blankets and hid some money with her. She was found by a Chinese pastor, uh, Pastor Lo, and his wife brought her uh, to safety. Uh, actually, here's a picture of, uh, of that moment. But uh, John and Betty, when they were uh, executed, it really sent shockwaves uh, through all that heard this. And so when Frank uh, heard about this, that uh, two of their missionaries had been murdered and this tragedy had occurred, um, he decided to go visit uh, the missionaries and go on kind of a tour, a meeting face-to-face with uh, some of the missionaries throughout uh, the land in which they were ministering and encourage them. And one of the things that was on Frank's mind as he went and, uh, and sought to encourage them uh, was 2 Corinthians 8-9. And 2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And as Frank is meditating on this verse, and uh, as he's, uh, you, you can think of him uh, walking through and, and taking buses through the mountains and the valleys and the villages in China. As he's thinking about these things, this verse is on his mind, and he begins to write uh, the hymn that we're looking at this morning. Um, and, and, and you wonder, maybe why is that particular verse on his mind, that Christ left his riches in heaven and condescended to be with us, uh, to, to take on poverty, that we might share in his riches. Well, maybe he was thinking of John and Betty Stam. Maybe he was thinking of the way in which they, in a sense, were Christ-like, leaving the comforts of home to go and be missionaries in such a dangerous place. Maybe he was thinking about his own journey in some ways, leaving uh, safety and going into a place that he knew was dangerous, but to encourage the missionaries there. Maybe on his mind a little bit was how he and other missionaries might answer skeptics. Why don't you just come home? It's dangerous out there. Why don't you come back to England or to the U.S. uh, rather than risk yourselves? Um, Maybe he was thinking uh, of what he would say to discouraged missionaries, uh, those who were uh, worried about uh, what had happened to the Stams. Maybe, Maybe he was thinking about the fact that Christ condescended. Or maybe He's thinking about all of that, but chiefly, he's thinking about the worthiness of Christ. 
that if the Lord Jesus did this for us, how much more should we seek to give of ourselves? Uh, the, the Lord Jesus, uh, for, for him to live, uh, for, for uh, Frank to live as Christ and to die as gain. In fact, on uh, John and Betty Stam's tombstones, uh, John's, it was written that Christ may be glorified, whether by life or by death. And on his wife's tomb, it was written for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. Uh, well, I think Frank probably had all of these kinds of things in his mind, but chiefly he's thinking about the Lord Jesus and what he has done for us. You know, you notice in this uh, hymn that there's a real movement to it. Uh, you, the, there's the, 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 the greatness and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then there's his humiliation, him coming low. But then there's this movement of him bringing us up with him, raising us up to heavenly places. Uh, well, let's, let's think about this verse for a little while that, uh, that Frank uh, Houghton based uh, this hymn on, 2 Corinthians 9, 8. Uh, first, let's, let's, take, let's take this apart in pieces. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, and, and why is Paul using these metaphors of riches and poverty? In the immediate context that Paul wrote this, he was writing to the Corinthians and encouraging them to be generous, uh, to be giving and to support, uh, to support churches that needed help financially. But he uses this really vivid and beautiful uh, picture of the gospel in order to communicate that, that Christ who is rich became poor, that we might become Rich, and so Paul is using these metaphors of riches and poverty. But what is it, what exactly does he mean by them? How is Jesus rich? How what what might we say about this? Well, first of all, we'd say that Jesus is rich because Jesus is God. He is the eternal second person of the Trinity. Uh, Houghton gives us his view about the deity of Christ. Uh, you know, Houghton's writing around the same time that. Uh, that uh, Machen was writing to. There's liberalism in, uh, in, in the English-speaking world. And so what does Houghton think about Jesus? Well, he tells us in stanza two, line one, thou who art God beyond all praising. Uh, the, and, and you may notice that phrase uh, taken to uh, serve as the beginning of another hymn that we sing sometimes, uh, O God beyond all praising. But, but he believes that Jesus is God and that Jesus was enthroned on sapphire-paved courts, in, in sapphire-paved courts. Uh, God reveals himself to us in splendor, in brightness. And we see this in Ezekiel, uh, in, in Ezekiel 1.26, they're written on your sheet. Uh, but also uh, John and his vision in Revelation, the, the, the vision that the Lord gives uh, John is of, of, uh, of the heavenly kingdom being surrounded by jewels. And why is that? Well, it's to communicate God's glory beyond all splendor to us. Uh, Frank Houghton believes that Jesus is God, that he is worthy of all praising, and it is that Jesus who condescended to us. Uh, Jesus is God. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Uh, John 1.14 tells us explicitly that this is talking about Jesus. and in that, that verse, in the beginning, John is purposely sounding like Genesis 1.1, in the beginning was the Word. He does not say, in the beginning the Word was made. 
And he does not say, in the beginning, the word came into being. No, in the beginning, the word was already there. And, and then he clarifies, how can that be? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Now, now how can the word, who is Jesus, how can he be God and yet be distinct from God, with God? Well, God is revealing himself as triune. There is only one God. And God exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, He is triune. And these three are one God. And they're the same in substance, as the Catechism says. They're equal in power and in glory. The Son and the Spirit are not lower quality God. The, The Son is every bit as God as the Father is. And so Jesus is rich. He is God. He owns and is over all things. Colossians 1.16 says, For by Him, by the Son Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through Him and for Him. And He's before all things. And in Him all things hold together. You can't get bigger than owning everything. And that's who Jesus is. He owns all things. He was rich beyond all splendor. Then that brings us to the next part of uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 9, which is, how did he become poor? Well, this is uh, him speaking of the incarnation. The Lord Jesus became man and yet without sin. Philippians 2, 5 says, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, meaning there not that Jesus lessened any part of himself, uh, not that he ceased to be God in any way or gave up any of his qualities as God. Charles Hodge says about this that he laid aside the glory of his divine majesty. He didn't come recognizably uh, as God. Uh, Isaiah 53 says he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. The the angels praised him when Jesus was born. The shepherds and the wise men came, but everyone should have come. Herod, everyone should have come and bowed down to the Lord Jesus. But he came in humility, uh, fully God and yet fully man, born in the humility of the stable. There's such that beautiful line in here that he traded thrones for a manger. Uh, Thrones for a manger did surrender. This is in stanza one, uh, the third line. Sapphire paved courts for a stable floor. Uh, Jesus' humiliation was great enough for him to become one of us. But he died this shameful, torturous death on the cross for our salvation. It's one thing for him to become man, as Philippians 2, 5, and 6 say, uh, that, he, uh, em- that he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he went even further. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The, the one who was perfect was killed like he was a criminal. The, the one who was holy, perfectly holy, was lied about. And he was called a blasphemer. He himself was called a liar, a drunk, a demon-possessed person. 
He was slandered in all kinds of terrible ways. And the one who came for sinners was killed by sinners. And all to save sinners. The Lord Jesus did this for our salvation. And this is why it's so important for us to grasp the fact that Jesus is indeed God. Because what makes this a condescension is that Jesus is God, that He came from the highest you can possibly be to the lowest. In order for Him to come down, He must be higher. And so maybe this is on my mind because of Christianity and liberalism. But liberalism that Machen was fighting doesn't give you this. Uh, An anti-supernatural religion believes that Jesus is an, an ordinary man with an extraordinary God consciousness. So he's a very special man, but he's just a man. But if that's the case, then there's no glory in his birth. It's only sentimentalism then. There's nothing to sing about at Christmas if he's just an ordinary man. Now, so liberalism doesn't give you this, but neither do distortions of the Bible give you this, like I have in mind Jehovah's Witnesses who believe that Jesus is an angel. Um, Now, that would be something of a condescension. But angels have helped God's people before. In fact, that's their job. God directs angels to give us messages. God directs angels to go and do things for Him. Angels follow orders. Jesus is God. He gives the orders. He is the one Uh, who rules over all things, and yet He humbles Himself to come to us, submits Himself to His Father's will while He is on earth, and does what His Father pleases all the way to the cross for our salvation. Jesus is God. He humbled Himself. And you can't find a greater example of humility than this. You can't find a greater confidence condescension of someone greater going any lower. Uh, Another hymn in our hymnal, uh, maybe a lesser known Christmas carol to you, but it's Martin Luther's hymn, All Praise to Thee, Eternal Lord. It says, the skies did once before thee bow, a virgin's arms contain thee now. It's a beautiful picture of Christ's condescension. You can't find greater humility than this. There, there are all sorts of examples of humility, of, of humblings in the scriptures. Uh, maybe you think of Daniel chapter 4 with King Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the greatest king in the world, and humanly speaking at the time, he was probably right. He had riches, he had physical pleasure, he had power, he had an army to get his back. He, and he boasted in this unparalleled majesty that he thought he had. And then God said to him, how about I take your mind? How about I take your ability to stand on your own? And Nebuchadnezzar, because God just took his reason from him, was driven away from his home, and he lived in the wild. He ate grass like he was an ox. His hair grew so long and it was matted with the dew that it was like eagle's feathers on him. And his fingernails got so long that they looked like bird's talons. And so what was the point? Why was the Lord doing this to Nebuchadnezzar? He was going from being the king of the world, he thought, to being nothing more than a beast. He was like a beast before the Lord. It it was as if he was subhuman. 
So Nebuchadnezzar, if we can say it this way, went from thinking he was the greatest of all time to actually living like a goat. That's the journey that he went from. And Nebuchadnezzar, in, in this humiliation, another interesting thing about this is that the Lord told him exactly how long this was going to be. He said it in a bit of a cryptic way. He said, after seven periods of time, you'll be restored. It's one thing if you can stop someone and another thing if you can bring them back. The, the Lord is showing his absolute sovereignty, his control over Nebuchadnezzar. God took his reason and then he gave it back to him. Uh, the Lord humbled Nebuchadnezzar to his core. But the Lord Jesus needed no humbling. It was fitting for Nebuchadnezzar to be brought low. But Jesus is glory in the highest. You cannot, there's, there's no description of Jesus that does him perfect justice. He is perfectly holy. He is great beyond all things. In Nebuchadnezzar, we see a man being brought low, a great man, humanly speaking, being brought to uh, the lowest state that perhaps a man can be in. But with Jesus, we see the triune, the living God, willingly becoming like one of his creation in order to save us. And it's astonishing. And it's not as if the Lord Jesus condescended and, and he came to earth where there were a bunch of bad people, but there were also a bunch of good people, and he came for the good ones. No, we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory. We have all had Nebuchadnezzar-like moments where we're looking at something that we've done and thinking how great we are for doing it, where we're looking at something that we have and we're feeling really good about ourselves for accomplishing all that we have. We have these Nebuchadnezzar-like moments. And when we think that kind of thing, we offend God. We deserve His wrath. And instead, we got His wealth. We get His forgiveness, His kindness, His compassion. We get Him. We get the Lord Jesus, the one who was rich beyond all praising, beyond all splendor, became poor all for our sake, uh, to save us. And so Jesus uh, leaves his riches, comes and embraces our poverty, our neediness, uh, except, uh, of course, Jesus was without sin. And, and he does this so that we might become rich. And so the question then is, what does it mean for us to become rich? Don't go out to your mailbox looking for a paycheck. That's not what this is talking about. Well, first, how do we become rich? Well, it's only through faith in Jesus. Paul does not say that Jesus left for us a great, uh, this, uh, you know, a get rich quick scheme. That Jesus left his riches, came to poverty, and then told a few of us so that we would spread the message around, well, here's how you get to riches. Here's the 12 step program. No, the, the Lord Jesus left his heavenly throne, came, embraced our poverty in order to make us rich, in order to make us alive, to bring us out of, uh, out of our sin into his glorious grace. We become rich, so to speak, by grace. Well, what are these riches? Uh, there's, there's a great summary of this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Uh, uh, I, I don't think this is on your sheet. Maybe it is. But this is one that's worth looking up. 1 Peter 1. Verses 3 through 5, it says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance, hear this riches language, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. If, if we are in Christ, then we have received the riches of salvation. God has raised us up with Him. Ephesians 2 says, God raised us up with Him and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming age He might show us the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. Colossians 3.1 says that, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Well, let's get a little bit more specific about what some of these riches are. Um, And and I'm just going to fly through uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism here. This is questions 32 through 38. But in this life, the the riches that we receive are, are justification. And what does justification mean? Well, it means that all of our sins, if, if you trust Christ, all your sins are pardoned, past, present, future. And you are accepted as righteous in God's sight. Uh, you're, you're not just brought to neutral. Your, your account balance isn't brought to zero. Uh, you are instead given the riches of Jesus's righteousness. You're called as righteous as he is. And you're like, I don't deserve that. I know. That's the glory of the gospel is that we have been given uh, his righteousness. And it's by faith alone that we have this. We have justification. We have adoption into God's family. We're received into his family. We're numbered with his sons and daughters. And we receive all the rights and privileges of the sons of God. We're also given sanctification. It's this process that begins when we're justified and adopted and then goes uh, throughout our lives. And it's where our whole person is being renewed after God's image. And he's enabling us more and more to die to sin and to live to righteousness. And some people might hear that and think, well, that sounds sounds like a challenge. That sounds difficult. And, and, And it is. It is the challenge. It is the fight of our lives. But it's also glorious. It's a joy. It's a gift to you because sin is death. Sin is slavery. Sin is joy robbing, soul killing, and it offends a holy God. And God's commands are for your good and for your joy. And so as you leave sin behind and pursue righteousness by God's power and by his grace, you're coming into more of these riches, more of this joy of knowing the riches that you have in Christ. What are some more? You get so many riches, y'all. You, you get assurance of God's love. Now, this isn't perfect in all of his saints, and sometimes we go through difficult periods uh, where perhaps we even we doubt God's love for us. But you can have an ever-growing assurance that God does, in fact, love you, that you are his son, that you are his daughter, purchased by Christ. And he's given you his word. He's given you his spirit. Uh, He's given you prayer so that you can speak to him. He's given you brothers and sisters uh, in Christ who can pray for you in those moments where you feel low and brought down, that that your assurance of God's love may increase as you pursue walking in holiness. 
You also have peace of conscience. You, you have uh, the, the peace that the Lord gives you, that your sins have indeed been forgiven. And so that when you sin, you don't have to hide in guilt and shame over that sin. You can go to Christ and receive forgiveness. And you can go to uh, brothers and sisters that perhaps you have offended and ask them for forgiveness. And perhaps there are earthly consequences that you might have to deal with for some of your actions. But you have forgiveness from God and you have the Holy Spirit to help you walk in new obedience. You also have, if you're in Christ, you have joy in the Holy Spirit. And that's really good news. Uh, we, we have joy that comes not from earthly circumstances, but joy that's truly a gift from the Lord himself. And, and, and maybe most, uh, the, the, it's, it's the thing that we most want to hear after hearing a list like that. Because we hear a list like that and we think, man, that sounds really wonderful. I hope I never lose those things. Well, well the last thing here is that he will enable us to persevere by his grace to the end. That the Lord, once he has us, holds us and does not let us go. It's glorious news. The good work that he began in us, he will carry to completion because Christ's uh, blood is sufficient to save us. Now, those are the, the, some of the riches that we begin to experience in this life. But it doesn't stop there. At death, we also receive the riches of the Lord. At death, we are made perfect in holiness. We immediately pass into glory when we leave this life. And our bodies, because they're still united to Christ, they rest in their grave until the resurrection, until the second coming of Christ. And then on that day, when Christ returns, our bodies are raised. And they're raised up in glory. And we who are in Christ are openly acknowledged and acquitted on the day of judgment. And we're made, this is the language from the Shorter Catechism, question 38. This language is wonderful. We are made, all of you who are in Christ, we are made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God for all eternity. That's your fate if you are in Christ, to go and be with the Lord. You, um, per, perhaps you're a young person and you have all kinds of questions about what heaven is going to be like. And perhaps you're an older person and you're just not as willing to admit that as a younger person is. Maybe you have all these questions. Um, the, the Lord hasn't answered every single one of your questions that you might have about heaven. But he has answered that you can trust him. That he knows you better, better than anyone. And he's given us this. That on that day when we go to be with him, we will be perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of him for all eternity. Well, there are many in our day and throughout history who have been worldly rich and yet poor in this way, poor spiritually. And maybe at Christmas time, you do what I do and you think about Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol. I love that story for a whole lot of reasons, but maybe you think about Ebenezer Scrooge, uh, this a tight, a tight-fisted man uh, who holds his wealth and hoards it. He keeps accumulating for himself, but he never spends it. He never invites people to a feast. He never indeed invites people into, uh, into uh, his own home as, uh, to be friends with him. Uh, he's, a, he's a rich and miserable man. Uh, maybe you think of the man in Jesus's parable who keeps building bigger barns, 
And yet, this night, you fool, uh, your soul is required of you. And, and, and what happens to all of your riches? Maybe you think of the book of Ecclesiastes. And you think of Solomon. And isn't Ecclesiastes the testimony of the richest man in the world talking about how poor he feels? You think about that book in this way, the man who had uh, worldly riches and pleasure and earthly knowledge, all these experiences, everything at his disposal, and yet he feels poor. It's easy to scoff, too, at, at rich people who complain about depression and who never have enough. Maybe you've thought this about some famous people uh, who seem to have so much that the world wants, and yet they're just miserable. Uh, maybe people scoff at that, but this is, this is exactly what Ecclesiastes says you're going to feel if you get all of those things and do not have Christ. You should send every famous person just Ecclesiastes. And maybe they'll be interested in reading the rest of the Bible. They'll, they'll read Ecclesiastes and go, yeah, I know exactly what this feels like if they don't have Christ. Uh, and and, and you, you wonder what, what is going to cause a person to, to recognize uh, that, they, that the things that they are chasing are actually just impoverishing them more. And it's only repentance and faith in Christ. You can be worldly rich and yet spiritually poor. Uh, Frank Houghton in our hymn, uh, is, is teaching us to sing about the only riches that really matter. You can be poor and have these riches, and that be all that you ultimately need. Now, there, there are many, uh, we talk about those who are worldly rich and yet spiritually poor. There are some who are doubly poor. There, there are some who are poor and stubbornly refuse the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, some hold on to their status as a victim. They say, woe is me. And they say, woe is me all the way away from Christ and toward hell. Now, James tells us not to just wish someone well who is starving, uh, just, to, just to write somebody off. We, we, it's important for us uh, as Christians to seek to meet the temporal needs of people. But we should never forget that there is a greater need. It's interesting, Frank Houghton, uh, he, he wrote several different things. One of the things he wrote was a biography of Amy Carmichael, the missionary to India. Uh, but he, he wrote a book uh, with, with a few other authors advocating for why missions to China was still important. Uh, and there, there were, in, in that day, and maybe you remember this from the Machen study, there were people questioning, especially in the liberal side of the church, uh, the purpose of missions, what missions is for. And, and there were many who were saying that missions is primarily about relief efforts. You don't so much need to go preach the gospel, they would say. That you need to go and help the, the economy of a society. You need to help a village uh, to, to become more prosperous. You need to meet people's physical needs, uh, heal the sick, uh, encourage the, the depressed, those kinds of things. And many of those things are good things. And so in, in Houghton's day, people were looking at China and saying, well, China is developing. Uh, it, seems to be, it seems to be doing okay economically at the time. Why do we need to be sending missionaries over there? And Frank Houghton's answer was because they are like us. They're sinners, and they need the gospel. So he was focused in on the fact that where, wherever you are in the world, your greatest need is the gospel. The, the greatest sense in which you are poor 
and you can be poor and have nothing, and you can be uh, rich and be poor in the way that Frank is talking about. Uh, you need the gospel. You need the riches that Christ has. You need salvation from sin. But we should also remember uh, that there are some who are spiritually rich and yet walk around in rags, so to speak. That there are those of us who are Christians, uh, but who are not enjoying the riches that Christ has given us. And so the question for you, if you feel like that's you, is do you abide in Christ? Do you trust the Lord? Do you, uh, if, if Perhaps this is a picture of you or, or someone that you know that, that maybe you can encourage and pray for and maybe counsel. Someone who calls themselves a Christian, but they always have a cloud over their head. They, they constantly doubt the love of the Lord for them. They believe that the Lord loves other people. They don't have a hard time with that. They have a hard time believing that the love of the Lord is for them. Well, you can encourage them. And perhaps you have to ask them questions like, are you, are you seeking to walk with the Lord? Because perhaps what's making you feel so bad is that you're still trapped in your sins uh, and that you're not fighting against those. But the, the Lord does not have for us a gloomy, pessimistic, waiting for the other shoe to drop uh, way, of, way of walking through the world. That's not what the Lord has for us. He has given us promises that we are actually supposed to reach out our hand by faith and grab. Don't you know that you can glorify God and enjoy Him forever? You can't do this in your own strength. This isn't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. So what the Spirit helps you and enables you to do. Meditate on the promises of God that He won't leave you or forsake you. That, that you can have all the love and joy and peace. That all, you can have all the fruit of the Spirit that He gives to you. You can have and you can enjoy the riches of Christ. It's interesting, uh, Simon Kistemacher points out in 2 Corinthians 8-9 how personal this verse is. Uh, it, it begins, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you can be personally acquainted uh, with, this, uh, with the grace of Jesus Christ that transforms us. And so a question perhaps that you ask yourself or that you uh, ask another Christian who's struggling is, do you know? Do you know personally the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ? And certainly this is what we would want to ask our neighbors, those who don't know the Lord Jesus. Do you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because you can be transformed by Him. You can leave the, the, the starving, ravenous pursuit for worldly riches. And you can embrace Christ and find in Him all the riches that your heart really longs for. And then certainly by resting and trusting in Him, uh, you can go and be productive in this life and perhaps even successful uh, in, in the business in which you labor. But ultimately, the thing that you're looking for is Christ. Uh, this is what we get to share with others. Paul says in Ephesians 3.8 that he preaches what? The unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Do you know Him? Do you know the riches that he has in himself? Well, that's the major theme of this hymn. Uh, and 
but before before we close, I just want to point out a few other just brief things about this hymn. It's it's there's so much in it. Notice just a just a few more things. One, notice the theme of love in this hymn. Uh, in in the, it's in all three stanzas in the first uh, in in the first uh, and second line of each. Um, in in stanza one in line one. Uh, that Jesus did all this for love. Thou who was rich beyond all splendor, all for love's sake became as poor. And then in the second stanza, the, thou who art God be beyond all praising, all for love's sake became man. Uh, and this is, of course, what we read in Scripture. It, it was out of love that Jesus uh, condescended for us. First John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins, that Jesus on the cross absorbed the wrath of God in our place. John 15, 13, the Lord Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And maybe at the time the disciples thought, well, yeah, I mean, that's a good definition. Uh, not, not knowing yet the fullness of what that was going to mean for Jesus, that Jesus was going to lay down his life for them who he would call his friends. So Jesus uh, condescended out of love for us. But then notice in stanza three, verse one, how it changes. Thou who art love beyond all telling. It's not just that Jesus did this for love. It is that Jesus is love himself. This is also a claim to divinity. First John four sixteen. So we've come to know and believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. It is for love that Jesus sacrificed himself for us. Uh, we, we also see the, uh, another theme, the sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, in this hymn. Uh, we see that in, in uh, stanza two, uh, notice this, that uh, thou who are God beyond all praising, all for love, love's sake became as man, stooping so low, but sinners raising, heavenward by thine eternal plan. It was by Jesus' eternal plan that he condescended and uh, did this for us. Uh, now, uh, in Ephesians 1.11, it says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. God needs no other counselors. He is perfectly wise. And so everything that the Father, Son, Holy Spirit does is perfect. He, they didn't have to have a planning session to figure out uh, what would be the best thing for them to do. Uh, the Lord decreed, he declared, he knew all things that would come to pass. He ordained all things that would come to pass. And this is the Father's plan. It is the Spirit's plan. It is Jesus' plan that he executed uh, on our behalf. Acts 2, verse 23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. It was according to this definite plan and this foreknowledge of God that Jesus went to the cross. Well, let's end our, our time by just looking at this one brief thing. It's, it's the way that Houghton ends, his, uh, ends the, the song, and I think it's, it's very interesting and helpful for us. Emmanuel within us dwelling, make us what thou 
wouldst have us be. It ends with the theme of sanctification, that the Lord Jesus is with us by sending the Holy Spirit uh, to dwell in us. And, And in this way, Jesus can say, behold, I'm with you always until the very end of the age. And the Holy Spirit is within us to sanctify us. Uh, Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, I put this uh, on your sheet, uh, and it's worth meditating on this as we close and uh, as we sing. Uh, Ephesians 4, 22, put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Uh, this, this whole hymn's about grace. It's by grace that you've been saved, and it's by grace that the Lord sends you out into the world uh, to go and to be sanctified, to be faith, to seek to be faithful to Him, uh, and to and to love one another. Uh, well, as we close, let's uh, take our hymnals and let's sing, "Thou who is rich beyond all praising." It's hymn two hundred and thirty. Uh, Doctor Reams is going to come over and play the melody for us so that we can sing along. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Savior and our King, uh, we thank you that you lived, died, and rose again, that we might have life in you. Help us now as we uh, seek to worship you in our worship service this morning. Uh, Bless us and keep us, we pray. Uh, All of this uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit and in Jesus' name, all God's people said, Amen. Amen.